0: tense negotiations and the pressures of closing while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Now I'm gonna ask you a rhetorical question. What if you built and sold a multi-billion dollar company only to get a check for a few hundred thousand or a few million dollars? Believe it or not, this could happen. So in this episode, we speak with Kevin Vela. He's a founding partner of Vela Wood, a law firm out of Texas that focuses on early stage M&A, private equity and venture financings. Part of his work is to make sure you avoid these kind of painful mistakes. I really enjoyed this discussion with Kevin because one, he's really passionate about what he does. And he's also counseled hundreds of clients on important game-changing events in their company's life. And nothing can be more game-changing than a financial event, whether that be a financing or an exit transaction. We get into a discussion of venture financings and really dig into some of the terms that management teams need to be aware of when raising capital. Some of the impacts of covenants or protective provisions that can be tied into the term sheets, can unfortunately haunt you into the future if you haven't worked with a strong attorney to really figure out what that's going to mean. Now Kevin shares a ton of great insights, like how VCs reject deals from the obstacles that are created from previous financings, or how interviewing your counsel before engaging them is so imperative to getting that strong relationship that will actually take you through the long term. And we also talked about how being proactive with your attorney can save you money or save you time because they'll actually have context of what you're looking to do and how it would fit into a larger strategy of how you're growing your company. I hope you enjoy this one as I sure did. You'll hear Kevin's passion and also I suggest checking out his site as him and his team have created a lot of valuable resources for you to use. Enjoy the show. Kevin, thanks so much for making the time, and thanks for being on the podcast. Sure, Corey, happy to be here. What we like to do is kick off with a brief elevator pitch about yourself. You know, I'm really interested to get your input as a lawyer and an attorney in the venture space, so why don't I let you take it away?
1: Okay, thanks, Corey. So, Vaila Wood is a corporate law firm with offices in Dallas, Austin, and El Paso, and while we do a wide spectrum of corporate activities, you know, your general organizing a business, negotiating uh, agreements between the stockholders or the partners or members, financing transactions, commercial agreements, you know, exiting businesses. A large focus for us is venture activity and venture financing. And then within the venture space, about 70 to 80% of those transactions were company side. And then the other 20 to 30%, we represent investors. We represent a number of venture funds, private equity funds, family offices, for their early stage investing.
0: Excellent. This is great. I'm looking forward to diving into this because I think there's a huge aspect of the legal world that is misunderstood by venture companies and really how to work with a law firm. So if you don't mind, can we get into that right off the bat of with your work in the venture space, how should companies or CEOs and their management teams really look at working with their law firm? So
1: first of all, I think it's important that any founder or CEO of a business, especially a small business, recognize that there's a couple of service providers that you need to have good access to to help you grow your business. You know, I think a lot of founders or CEOs look at these service providers as cost centers, but they need to understand that these service providers are there to help them keep profit, identify risk, de-risk the business, make wise decisions, and so forth. And those four service providers are a banker, an accountant, a lawyer, and an insurance agent. And you really need the banker and the lawyer first. Sometimes people will change the lawyer and start with an accountant, but you can add an insurance agent down the road. But anyway, you need these service providers, and there's great ones all over the country. Founders should go out, ask for referrals, ask people in their network, you know, go and interview people. I think one of the things people don't do enough when they're choosing a lawyer or an accountant is go out and interview them and make sure it's a good fit for them. But anyway, when you're looking for a lawyer, you want to find someone who is experienced and focused on what you do. And there's a couple of, um, I think, elements to that. One is the industry that you're in, and then another is the type of business that you're going to start. You know, for instance, we do a lot of small business, a lot of corporate work, a lot of venture financing. We don't do any work with publicly held companies from a a corporate or financing perspective. That's just not what we understand. That's not our area of expertise. So it wouldn't be prudent to come to us to ask us to help take your company public. On the flip side, it wouldn't be prudent to go to a lawyer who does a lot of public securities work and ask that lawyer to help you with your early stage financing. You also want to make sure you get someone who understands your industry. You know, working with venture companies in the tech space, we do a lot in what you would think is traditional tech, you know, software as a service, mobile applications, web applications, anything that's kind of internet or in the digital world. Then we also have a number of traditional businesses, brick and mortar, restaurant retail, service provider businesses, manufacturing companies, you know, clothing companies, things like that. Here, we don't do any oil and gas work. It's just something that we never really took a liking to. So if you came in and you had an oil and gas startup, we probably would be a good fit for you because we don't necessarily understand that industry. On the flip side, if you come in and you're building a SaaS-based business, that's something that we have a ton of experience in. So not only can we help you identify the legal need that you're going to have, but I think that there'd be opportunity for us to help you understand what it takes to build a SaaS business, at least from our perspective, with the number of clients we've had in that industry in the past.
0: One of the things that I like to hear you say is, you know, interview your potential lawyers before you go in and engage with them and you know I hear that as well like when you go to do uh, financing like do your due diligence on the one who's writing the check don't just go and take their money when for example to engage Vela Wood what does it look like I mean you've got a unique culture from what I can see and one of the things you say on your website is that you have a focus on relationships and not time how could we work with you as a management team in a way that maximizes that relationship and isn't just a clocked relationship?
1: Sure. You know, one of the questions you and I had discussed prior to hopping on the air, Corey, was, you know, are we doing things differently than other law firms? Externally, I don't know how different it is. I mean, for the most part, we bill by the hour. We do flat fee quite a few projects, but I think that's pretty common, even at big firms these days, to flat fee projects. So we flat fee things, we still bill by the hour, you know, it's a the situation where a client has a need, they call us, we'll generally try and give an estimate of what that looks like and then, you know, deliver the product back to the client. Ultimately, one of the things that I try and get our attorneys to understand is that what we're delivering is advice that allows the client to go and make decisions. And then sometimes the effect of that advice or the effect of those decisions are legal documents or more often than not, the effect of that is legal documents. But a client calls and says, I need to do a financing. Well, we want to talk about why are we doing the financing? What does the financing look like? Where are you going to go with the financing? And then once you get all those things set up and we find investors and whatnot, then you deliver legal documents. But I think it would be naive of us to think that just the delivery of the legal documents is what we're being engaged to do. You know, so as far as finding a good fit and how we can be different, I think internally, We're different than most law firms. You know, if a client needs a deliverable, say a client has a contract that needs to be turned around. The actual deliverables will look very similar if a client comes to us or the client goes to another law firm. But the way that we're preparing that deliverable, where we're preparing that from, the the level of questioning or the the relationship with the client that went into preparing that, and then also thinking through what are we going to do with this contract and this deliverable after we deliver it? How does it work into your business and your future goals? I think that's what sets us apart or that's the path that we want the firm on so that we can be much more forward thinking, right? We Mm -hmm. recognize that the law firm is a service provider. However, we believe that we can ultimately be a tool or a resource for your business, not just a plug and play service provider. So back to your original question, Corey, how can we work together? We're always willing to spend some time on the phone or in person with a new client or prospective client. Without charging the client for it, just to see if this is a good fit, I encourage people to ask how much will this cost? How long will this take? What does our relationship look like? How much will I spend in the first year? You know, we've got so many data points. I can pretty accurately tell a a small business or a startup exactly how much they'll spend in legal for each of the first two or three years. Hmm. So we can prepare that. And then finally, you ask, you know, what's like kind of best practice or how can we? work well with you, you always want to be proactive with your service providers. It is so much easier for me, once you have a relationship established, if we can just meet quarterly, at least quarterly, to see how the business is going. You might say, well, we're thinking about adding people. We're thinking about taking on a loan. We're thinking about exploring an exit or exploring an acquisition opportunity. It's so much better if we can talk about those things ahead of time and be proactive about them
0: rather than being reactive to it. I really like that. I mean, to me, that leads into a relationship building where the attorney will have a clear understanding and context of why decisions are being made, as opposed to just phoning up and saying, hey, I need a sub, Uh, we're doing it at this price, and blah, 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 here are the terms. I think it can lead to a lot of problems there if you're just reactively calling your attorney and not giving them any context, or the ability to ask the questions that may uncover some issues down the road you know corey that is honestly one of the best parts about my job is the counsel
1: that goes in and getting to see the inside of these businesses and understanding how those businesses work and then being able to draw on other experience and say well you're at this size and you're at this inflection point here's what i think might happen based on what i've seen with other similarly situated businesses and having that relationship with the client really being able to provide or add value that way it's just a it's a real you know, perk of the job. So get, this gets back to that big point I made a few minutes ago that the counsel, the thought, the advice, that's what the actual deliverable is, right? The of that deliverable is the documents that people sign and then we put into a binder or you know, into a digital binder somewhere and hang on to until we need them again. But I agree with you being proactive and building that relationship, I think, really allows both sides to maximize value in the relationship.
0: With that with that relationship and with the counsel that you give, I understand that you 've done hundreds of transactions, whether it be mergers and acquisitions, private equity, or venture transactions and you know you 've got a great list there of transactions you 've done from you know like a few million bucks up to fifty some odd million and i 'm sure even larger than that with all of those i mean these are really significant moments in the life of a company. Can you share with us some lessons that come from perhaps specific transactions you've done, or as a blanket, what should companies and CEOs know when they're financing their companies?
1: Sure. So let's just talk about larger transaction, whether it's a larger financing or an exit transaction, right? And some of the most important things there. First of all, you always want to have a good, clean corporate history in place. This comes up all the time. Accountants ask for it. Your board asks for it. Your Potential investors ask for it, your potential purchasers ask for it and want to acquire your company. So having your corporate formation docs, your board resolutions, your stockholder resolutions, your option plan, your option grants, your previous financing docs, all in one place, tremendously helpful. Let me just kind of give you an example. Let's just say that your startup is going through a series A financing and you're raising $5 million from a VC firm. And the VC firm has a big national law firm who's handling a transaction for them. And they call your startup and they say, okay, well, let's start by seeing your corporate history. And if your corporate history is scattered throughout emails and Dropbox and computers, and you're just piecemailing, sending them one thing at a time, on the due diligence side, they're going to go through every single word of every single document to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. And then they're going to find warts. And every single transaction has issues. It's no big deal. There's always something that didn't get signed or some issue that needs to be resolved. Totally fine. But you're inviting that a higher level of scrutiny. On the flip side, if you say, "Great, glad you asked. Here's a Dropbox folder, or here's a couple PDFs. Here's all our corporate history in one place." That is going to give the people doing due diligence with general law firm, or if you're doing a larger transaction, there will be accounting firm or consulting firm involved as well. That is going to give them great comfort with the care that you've taken, not only with your legal corporate governance, but also with your company. And so then the other side is being inclined to say, boy, look, they've got really everything buttoned up here. And let's just say that one thing is missing.
0: The other side that people doing due diligence are going to think they just made one little mistake, no big deal, let's get that clean. What I tie this into is, it's pretty much a user experience. When you create a great piece of software, it's just a wonderful, easy user experience. When you're going through your due diligence process for a financing, and it's a wonderful user experience, you don't get that bad rap, you don't have that friction. That is a fantastic analogy, I like that. I'm gonna borrow that, I'm just gonna steal it to be (laughs)
1: honest, right And then, but the point I wanna make is a user experience, yes, if you're doing a user experience and you catch a glitch, you're going to say, oh, this is a glitch, and you're going to go report it back to the app because you want to help them improve, right? You want to give them positive feedback. But if you have a terrible user experience, you're probably likely to just delete the app, tell people that it sucks, or, or, you know, just not use it. So I think that's a great, great analogy. And, yes, that's on point. So, one, you want a nice, clean corporate history. Two, if you're a CEO, as you're going through financing, you're going through a large acquisition, you want to be thinking about how does this affect management of the company today, but not only today, also tomorrow. Eventually, if you build your company and you take it public, you're going to lose control of your company. All right, just, you know, mm-hmm. 99 times out of 100 or 999 times out of 1,000, you're going to eventually lose control of your company. Now, if you sell it, maybe not the case. Most founders lose control of their company sometime around the A or B round. And this is just a function of the financing. This doesn't necessarily mean that someone else takes control. The control could go to a board where you have a couple of founders on the board, a couple of investors, and an independent. So you have a five-person board with two, two, and one, two founders, two investors, independent. And that's just okay. And that's going to happen. And then slowly but surely investors might take over more of it, which if the investor invested $50, $100, $200 million into a business, they probably should have a, a good you know, idea of what's going on and how to run the company.
0: Yeah. Can you sure, expand sure. on that? I mean, we can have, you can lose control by simply selling more than 51%, or you can, in a way, lose control by having a board that's directed by your VCs, regardless of your shareholdings, that perhaps it's not direct control, but there's a lot of influence there that can be lost. When bringing those people onto the board, what should be cautious of there? So that's a great point. You know, we could talk for hours about just this point, Corey. I would mm-hmm.
1: encourage anyone listening who might really have questions about how this applies to their company to reach out to their attorney or reach out to an attorney and find a good one to walk you through with, you know, uh, with respect to your particular company. But in any company, Corey, there's three levels of control. There's a basic day-to-day control, which is done by the CEO, the president, and that person does most of the hiring and the firing. That person probably sets products or a general strategy. That person authorizes buying office supplies and, and, you know, kind of day-to-day decisions like that. Then you've got the board, which makes strategic decisions generally. The board will do things like set financing, decide if we're going to issue new securities, create option plans, maybe take on large loans, perhaps enter into mergers and acquisitions discussions or transactions. And then finally, you have your fundamental decisions, which are usually reserved for the stockholders. And that's just a couple of things. Selling the company, completely exiting or liquidating the company, converting the company to another entity type, filing for bankruptcy or winding down the company. So generally speaking, that's how decisions is laid out. Now, those things start to blend together through financing rounds. Because as you mentioned, Corey, so let's just think about a typical seed financing stage. Okay, Corey. Seed financing in tech these days is seven hundred and fifty grand to three million dollars. If you're in the valley it's five hundred grand, you know, seven hundred fifty grand to four or five million dollars for seed financing. But in a seed financing, you might say the business is worth $10 million. Let's take it easy. Business is worth eight million pre-money. We're going to raise two million. So that's $10 million post-money, because we're arguing the business was worth eight million before. We added two million cash now it's worth 10 million dollars and the investors just invested 2 million dollars so 2 million out of 10 million is 20% so the investors now own 20% of the business let's assume that there's three people on the board two founders and then one investor is going to take a board seat the lead investor for that 2 million dollar round will take the board seat so now the investors just wrote checks for 2 million dollars a pretty significant sum of money let's just make some general assumptions. The company had raised a couple hundred grand through friends and family or through founders dollars early on, but nothing in the order of $2 million. Well, the investor just put in $2 million, yet they don't control the board. They don't control the company. So what protections do the investors have from the founders saying, this is great. We've been working for free for a while. So now our salaries are $500,000 a year, or, you know, we're not really that crazy about this SaaS app. We think there's a real opportunity in the uh, mobile hot dog cart business. So let's go build a a mobile hot dog cart, right? The investors want some sort of comfort or protective provisions to to help protect or preserve their capital. Mm -hmm. And that usually comes in the way of negative covenants or protective provisions, which says, okay, board, two founders, one investor, the board can make decisions, two out of three, we got it. Okay, CEO and president or COO, you guys make the day-to-day decisions. But here's a list of things you can't do without the seed investor's approval. And that'll be things like enter into another financing, sell the business, materially change the line of business, issue options to the founders, change the comp structure of the founders, things like that. So they'll start to put some kind of negative controls in place or to be candid, most seed stage deals have the same five to 10 protect provisions. Most A deals have the same ones. Most B deals have very similar ones. Once you get to C and D ones, you start getting a little bit more creative or A little bit broader set of investor rights, but it's pretty typical to have those investor provisions. So again, the investors don't want to come in and tell you how to run your business but they need some level of control over the decisions that the board is going to make or the company is going to make. So that was the second major point, right? You had asked for a couple of things that founders need to be thinking of. It's just the control structure. And you can't think about what you're doing right then, but you have to think about how does this affect the next round? And this gets to my last major point of which founders need to be thinking about. It's future planning. I think most founders are generally planning for the future of their business from an operational standpoint. Most founders have some sort of a you know, 18 months to three-year org chart, cash flow pro forma, marketing plan. So I think most, you know, CEOs of small businesses have these things in place. What I don't think they're thinking about are legal issues, such as if I give these rights up in this seed round, the next round is going to use these as a starting point. So if you give up certain terms in your seed term sheet or your seed financing, Realize that the next round of financing will start with those terms, but just a different valuation. That's so if you give like up aggressive terms, that they'll work from. exactly. If you mm-hmm. give up really aggressive terms early on, then you're going to be giving up those same or more aggressive terms later on. So you've got to think about that future planning from a legal standpoint. How do these terms affect future planning? And then what other legal things have I not been doing, which I will need to, for instance, once you get to a seed stage, you're probably going to need to get D&O insurance, directors and officers insurance. You might start getting products liability or cyber insurance, or some sort of E&O, errors and omissions insurance if you're more of a services firm. So those are insurance questions, but they're kind of legal related, and those will increase costs. And then a lot of times when you're going from seed to A, you know, from uh, early stage to seed or seed to A, you might be converting some of your independent contractors to employees employees, you have to pay more taxes on them. You have to offer them health care, you generally offer them health care, maybe other benefits. So there's an expense there. So there's a lot of kind of legal buttoning up that happens from the early stage to the later stage. And you want to be thinking about that as you're doing your, when you're in the middle of a transaction is what else, you know, what's going to come down the road as a result of this. Hmm.
0: So many questions come from this. I mean, there's, I find when I do these interviews, you can write books on just a single subject or a single question. So, what I want to do though is maybe drill in a little further on this. I asked a follow on question in, to this or, you know, what are three important things a CEO should be aware of when financing their company? You started to touch on those and you mentioned that, you know, even at the seed stage, there's usually three to five or more protective provisions that come in. And I've referred to these as the VC hooks before. They want to sink their hooks in, one, to protect them, but two, to make sure that the company is going to go in a direction that they believe is best to protect their capital and ultimately see a return. Can we talk about what those protective provisions are and maybe you know, what defines aggressive versus not
1: Okay. Yeah. Great question. So I like that VC hooks. I think that's a good phrase for them. So the first one is that the company can't sell without investor approval, because let's just go back to our example where the investors invested at $10 million post money valuation and the investors invested 2 million, they own 20%. Let's just say the day after that financing, the company gets an offer to sell for $11 million. Well, the founders might say, well, heck, $11 million, we're going to be millionaires. This is fantastic. And the investors are going to say, well, wait, we invested $2 million. Now we're going to get out 20% out of 11, which is 2.2 million. I mean, $200,000, sure, that's a great return for a a one-day exit in our scenario. But realistically, VC investors are not in this thing for a 10% return. Right, They're looking to get 2x, 4x, 10x, 100x maybe. So investors and founders aren't necessarily aligned with that exit strategy. So that's why investors will say, you can't sell without our approval. What I like to do, and that's a standard protective provision. If you look at the NVCA forms, which is what most people use, those are available at nvca.org. NVCA stands for National Venture Capital Association. It's a nonprofit dedicated towards standardizing venture docs and facilitating capital raises across the, you know, we'll just say across the continent. If you look at those, you'll see that that protective provision is in there. What I like to do is go in there and put in a floor and say, okay, investors, fine. We can't sell the business without your approval unless it's at at least a 3x return or a 5x Mm. return. So that way, if you don't get an investor who's getting greedy and thinking, hey, man, we just hit the next you know, Facebook, I'm going to wait for a 100x return, and the founders are ready to take their 10x and go. So that's one. Another one is raising capital by issuing a senior class of equity. As you go through financing rounds, each round generally issues, or during each round, you generally issue a class of equity that's senior to the previous one. It might be senior in terms of liquidation preference, meaning who gets paid out first. It might be senior in terms of Dividend rights. It might have better dividend rights. It might be senior in terms of protective provisions. They might have better protective provisions. So generally, you issue senior classes each round. This protective provision prevents or, you know, allows the investors to get comfortable with the fact that you're not going to go just immediately do another financing round and push them down or cram them down on the capital stack. Again, I like to add a hurdle or a threshold in there that says, fine, we'll agree to that as long as we're below a certain valuation. If we can get to a $100 million valuation or whatever it may be, then investor, we don't want to have to sit around and wait for your approval. Some of the other ones are, let's see, issuing options other than a predefined option pool, because the investors don't want the founders to say, oh, by the way, we just created a new 30% option pool, and we're giving each of the founders another 15%, and you just got diluted you know, down to Nothing. Or yeah. you just got suffered major dilution. So creating an option pool is a pretty typical one. Spending money outside of the pre-approved budget. All right. Once you go through a seed round, most likely, and for sure an A round, you're going to have to you know, treat the business with probably much more diligence for more thoroughness than you had. No more just kind of spreadsheets here and there and, you know, back on the napkin type calculations. Yeah. You should have a pro formas that are built out, your budgeting. You should have an annual budget that gets approved by the board and says, we're going to hire this many people. We're going to spend this much on marketing. We're going to do this in R&D. And if you want to go beyond that, then you, you probably need investor approval.
0: I just want to tap into that one. I mean, that comes down to when you're pitching, really having a solid use of proceeds, having thought through it. Because I mean, that can become something that the investors are going to look and say, no, you said that this was going to be your use of proceeds. What are you doing switching this up? This was the plan. I agree. And I'll add to that. As a founder,
1: you've probably been taking below market salary or living off of nothing. You need to have your salary bump negotiated in the term sheet, as well as any additional options that you may be asking for, or options that you want to give out to people so that you don't have to get those things approved post-transaction when you have another voice in the room. So, yes, you want that use of proceeds, think about yourself, think about other employees or independent contractors that we might need to convert and increase their salaries. All of these things should be done sooner than later because when the VC is negotiating with you and they might be negotiating against other investors, they're going to be more inclined to open up or to say yes to those things. Once the company goes, and I don't want to act like VCs are bad. I know there's a lot of horror stories out there about VCs and that they're all, you know, vultures and whatnot. I don't think that's the case. It's definitely not the case in my, I haven't experienced a whole lot of that. That said, I have seen some pretty aggressive terms or some situations that weren't good and didn't turn out well. So it definitely can happen from time to time. But in my experience, the vast majority of the venture capitalists that I work with or the the principals that then join the boards or become active in the management of the business, they're great to work with. However, those guys are fiduciaries for their capital. So if they put in $2 bucks, they have a responsibility to whoever invested into their fund, and they can't go just throwing money to the founder because the founder decided that she thinks she needs a $50,000 bonus at the end of the year. So if that wasn't pre-negotiated, it'd be a lot harder to do.
0: Is it any other points you wanted to add to that? I've got a lot of questions and, and they keep adding up But we only have about 20 minutes left here Is there anything else for protective provisions that founders should be aware of when they go and do a financing?
1: I'll say that the standard ones that are built into the NVCA docs are Pretty down the middle. They're reasonable. So I don't have a lot of problem with that. There are some slight adjustments we like to make on a regular basis, but these are things that you need to discuss with your attorney because given the nature of your business, you know, the, the varying from the budget is an interesting one because if you are a, let's say you're a consumer products company and let's just say you make some sort of a wearable, your wearable starts to take off and you need an inventory and you need a million bucks because let's just say Target calls and says, I don't want to put in an order for this and you need a million bucks and you didn't predict that Target was going to be in there right? That you're going to get that order from Target that's not in your budget. Now you've got to call a board meeting and take time to do that versus going to maybe your bank or a line of credit or a source of capital that you may have. That could take time. So I think that the, generally speaking, especially for a SaaS or a technology business, the protective provisions are good. However, that doesn't eliminate the need for you to sit down as a founder, sit down with your counsel and walk through them on a one-by-one basis to see is this a good fit for us.
0: This all leads into, I think, well, another big discussion. And that is, I don't want to say future-proofing because you can't do that, but thinking to the future based on the terms that you have now. And you made a great point that when you do your seed round, the terms that come in there are the benchmark or the, the standard in which your next level of finance, your next raise is going to build off of. And all of these can start to compound in what some refer to as, uh, you know, the waterfall of kind of the flow of funds at some form of exit or some form of sale event. How can we start to think about the future, or how should a management team try to model that out and make sure they're not going to find themselves at the end of the day with a four or five hundred million dollar exit and they get a few hundred thousand dollars kind of thing? Sure.
1: You know, And that can happen with liquidation preferences because a lot of times, like we talked about, the most recent capital is the most senior capital. And I can to give you examples of companies that we all know about that had taken in hundreds of millions of dollars in financing. They were valued at $500 billion. And then an exit because of liquidation preferences, the founders ended up with maybe a million bucks Crazy. for a company that was worth, you know, a billion dollars, right? Because of the liquidation preferences. So, a couple of things. One, you need to have an attorney that you're comfortable with that understands all of this. You can talk through these scenarios. Two, you can build a model. And I don't want to say a basic model because they're not easy, especially when you have multiple rounds of financing or you have convertible instruments out there like safes or convertible notes. But you can build a model and we do that all the time. I think any venture attorney will have a good model. We have a good base model. So having a good cap table model that will allow for these hypotheses and exit scenarios can really help you to plan for the future. Simply put, you're looking at 15 to 25% dilution per round, okay? So if, you know, the first round you're at 100%, you take 20% dilution, now you're at 80%. Then the next round you take another 20% dilution, now you're at 64% because 20% of 80 is 16, so on and so forth. So 20% dilution per round plus every couple of rounds you're probably refreshing your option pool for another five to 10%. One of the companies we represent, the manager of the fund, one of the funds we represent, the manager did a blog where he took a look at the median ownership of founders at exit when they IPO. And it was somewhere around 12 to 14%. So if you're gonna go all the way through an IPO and you get into the 10 to 20% ownership range, that's okay. You can still control the company in other ways through board control and voting rights and things like that. But a good cap table model will help, and that can also help with the waterfall distribution that you're talking about, Corey. But if you're just simply planning on, you know, 20% per round, maybe a little bit more with the option pool, to help you figure out how many rounds you want to go through or you need to
0: go through. Building off of that, or going to a new question here, when you look at all of the VC firms out there, and also private equity firms, which you know have a perhaps a different, well, they do have a different motivation, or they tend to. What are those underlying motivations? And we touched on it a bit. For example, a VC firm is taking money from their investors and then investing it to ultimately see a higher return. So is a private equity firm. There's a business model there. What are the motivations of these principals who are these investors?
1: Well, there's what motivation? Return of capital. (laughs) Ultimately, that's what everyone's seeking. But the way they do it, you're right, it's a little different. However, the line is blurred. So a venture fund is going to make more investments, riskier investments, shorter time horizons. They're hoping to be out four to eight years. A private equity fund probably going to make a few less investments, more target investments into more mature companies, so less risky, maybe larger dollar amounts with a little bit quicker, maybe a two to five year exit. So I think ultimately they're all trying to return capital to their investors. They're all trying to hit, you know, IRRs that are better than the stock market, are better than what you could get in real estate, maybe even you know, obscene IRRs. Mm-hmm. When they model it out, I think they're probably modeling to 15 to 25%, which is still, you know, really, really good. The top venture funds have returned multiples on capital, you know, 200, 300, 400% in some of their best funds. But there's also a lot of venture capital funds that can't make it because it's a risky business. There's a lot of competition out there for businesses if there's more capital and there's competition for startups that just drives up valuations but the real point I want to make here Corey is that the line is blurring and I'm gonna throw family offices into this more and more I am getting calls from you know we know all the venture funds in Texas we know a lot of venture funds around the country because we reach out to them or they reach out to us looking for deals looking for opportunities but we are getting more and more introductions or calls from family offices or private equity funds as their risk tolerance is increasing and then they're sliding into the earlier stage of financing and they're moving into venture. You know, Corey, when you talk about the stages of finance or the stage of the company's in, I think you can identify the stages that the company's in by the stage of financing. And initially, you have your friends and family. A Brazilian uh, startup attorney called me the F FNF round, the friends, family, and fools round. Mm-hmm. So You have that friends, family, and fools round. And I like to call that the early, early stage of financing that's your earliest stage of financing then you move into you you transition towards seed there's usually some angel rounds lots of angel networks around there's usually some high net worth investors who are usually retired and I wouldn't say they invest professionally but they invest as a hobby and they make multiple investments per year and they might do that as a syndicate they might do that individually but that kind of gets you in the 250 to 750 range these high net worth these angel investors then you start to blend into seed rounds, which is sometimes institutional investors or app syndicates from formal angel groups. There's some very active one. The most active angel network in the entire country is out of Austin called Central Texas Angel Network. So they might be able to quickly band together and write a $500,000 check among their members. So you get into that and there might be some institutionals. What we're seeing, Corey, is more venture funds are looking for earlier opportunities. So there's companies are coming in and investing into these $500,000 to $2 million seed rounds, even though the company might not, probably doesn't have any revenues and definitely nowhere near profitability, might still be figuring out product market fit, might have a pivot ahead of them. And then once you get past your seed round, then you get towards your A round. That's really where early stage starts as far as the big investors are concerned, venture funds, private equity funds. And they will call early stage a rounds, B rounds, C rounds, you know, big private equity fund or a big institutional fund. We'll look at a B or a C company, a B or C round company and call that early stage, even though in my world, that's a very late stage startup, because that's probably been around for four years. They'd probably raised more than $50 million. Their market value is probably 300 to 500 million as far as their round value goes. So you really have this really, really early stage, which is just kind of the friends, family and fools. Then you've got your angel round with some friends and family and some high net worth. Then you've got your seed round, which is kind of angels kind of picking up the low end of that, and institutionals on the high end of that. And then you move into your A, B, and C round.
0: Excellent. And all of that, I think, from our earlier conversation, protect your cap table and be wise with the terms that you will let into each round there.
1: And I think it can be done appropriately. One of the biggest gripes or criticisms I hear from VCs who are passing on early stage deals is there are too many hurdles or obstacles from previous poor financing, hmm. And I see this a lot, Corey, because a company will come to me and a company's already been around for two years and they took their first investor capital from a family office or private equity. And it got structured like family office or private equity investment, not like venture investment. So there's things like redemption rights or multiple board seats for the investor. There's control issues. And you have to go and unwind a lot of those things before you can take it to the next round. So it's really important that founders understand you're very unlikely to exit your business after your first round, after your second round, probably even after your third round. It's going to be multiple rounds after that. So each of those rounds needs to be accomplished with an eye towards the next one and the one after that.
0: There's so many tidbits of just great advice that I'm hearing out of this when you say these things. So I'm really excited about this episode and, and thank you for that. I'm just looking at time here, Kevin, and I want to um, aim to wrap it up to be respectful of yours. And so I do want to ask you, uh, for the year to come, 2020, do you have any predictions? Any thoughts on what we're going to see? I think you're going to see venture at the top
1: end of the spectrum, the largest deals, the WeWork issues. I think that's going to lead to lesser valuations for these later stage startups i think it's going to lead to a few less venture funds investing into those stages or maybe even crumbling of a couple of venture funds you know who might have made some wrong gambles from bad bets i think that there's a little bit of a bubble at the high end right at the very top you might see that burst but at the low end i think you're going to continue to see more startups with greater access to capital and i think The reason for both of these are similar is technology and risk tolerance. Technology is making it easier than ever for a startup to get started. Cloud computing is very inexpensive. You can find developers overseas easier now than ever. You can find great developers here locally, and it's not going to be, you know, we used to cost $150,000 to build. It's probably $50,000 to build today. The gig economy makes it easier. You know, co-working spaces make it easier. Plus, cities have a plethora of resources available from, accelerators and incubators and startup weekends and just information out there to help a startup get going so they'll make less mistakes more quickly develop the business more quickly and get to milestones you know, which are interesting to investors more rapidly
0: hmm. on the
1: capital side of it more and more people want to do this. And I think that people are becoming more comfortable with the risk. You know, if you think about the birth of venture capital in the late 60s and early 70s in Silicon Valley, a lot of that came out of Stanford and professors and people who really understood tech out there. And Stanford did amazing things to really push that, you know, HP was born out there. And then, uh, you know, Intel and things like that. What happened was, those generations became very comfortable with venture investing. So the people who are working at VCs in Silicon Valley now, their fathers might've worked for a VC or their grandfathers might've even worked for a VC, but at least they were comfortable with this level of investing here in Dallas. People weren't that comfortable with it until, you know, let's call it the last 10, 15 years. And I'm just using Dallas as an example, but take any city in America that doesn't have a real strong VC history or venture capital history People are becoming more accustomed to it. They're reading about it. The ecosystem around them is becoming more supportive of it. You've got lawyers who understand it and they can go out there and help educate. You've got angel networks so people can syndicate and de risk things and do due diligence together. You've got resources available online. So I think this will lead to more capital being available, and then those capital startups will find each other. So I believe that at the very top end of the spectrum, we'll see less huge deals. We'll probably see some things fall apart. I think you might see a, a few funds have to shut down because they made some bad bets. I think at the early stage, you'll see more private individuals invest. You'll see more of them join angel networks. And then you'll start to see more institutional investors slide down even further into pre-revenue investments.
0: That's awesome. And, you know, I think good for the ecosystem all around. So thanks for the insights. So we neat to see how the year unfolds. Just as we're rounding up about uh, on the hour that we've spent together, I want to say thanks so much. This has been really informative. Vela Wood is your law firm, and I'll I'll put the links in the show notes. Is there anything else that you would like to share, or is there anywhere the listeners can follow your work?
1: Sure. I appreciate the opportunity to share these things. We have a number of resources available on our website. If you just go to velawoodlaw.com, click on Resources, and then Startups. We've got blogs. We've got podcasts. We've got infographics, we've got charts, we've got a lot of stuff available for early stage companies. And then we also have links to other things that we like, other blogs or other podcasts. We also have podcasts available on Apple Podcasts. We've got a couple of different ones from interviewing other founders to reviewing Silicon Valley, the show, which used to have quite a few venture parallels. Now they've kind of gone in a different direction, but it's still a lot of fun to do that. Also, there's a book out there called Venture Deals by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. I think it's on its fourth edition. Yep. Highly recommend that for any founder who wants to go out and raise capital. They break it down. Each chapter is fantastic. You should probably read it a couple of times. These guys know what they're doing. These guys helped to start tech stars out in Boulder. We've done a chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast review of that book. So you could go read the book and then listen to the podcast. And I think that this would be a great way to initiate yourself into the world of venture financing and safe agreements, convertible notes, term sheets, board, material terms on that term sheet, dilutive effects, future cap table, things like that.
0: Brad is certainly outstanding. And that book is the Bible when it comes to venture deals. We're working to have him on the show here. So uh, that's so great to hear you say that. And I'm looking forward to his episode as well. Well, you know, Kevin, I just want to say thanks so much for this. I'll put links to your resources. And for all the listeners, I've actually done the research and gone to the Vela Wood website. There's a lot there. So uh, I certainly recommend that everybody go there. And thanks again. Okay. Thanks so much, Cole. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.